Welcome to SCN2A Insights, bringing you the latest research and clinical updates on SCN2A and genetic epilepsy from around the world. Welcome to this episode of SCN2A Insights and welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me. In this episode, we're talking about Lennox-Gastow syndrome and we had the pleasure of interviewing Tracy Dixon-Salazar, who's Director of Research and Strategy for the Lennox-Gastow Foundation. And great job setting up that interview, Chris. Thank you. Yeah, Tracy's a real powerhouse in the rare epilepsy world and it was a real pleasure to have her on our podcast. And as you'll hear in the interview, I think it gives a really good understanding of what Lennox-Gastow syndrome is much more than I ever understood when I was in medical school or in my work as a doctor. So it's a great interview. Well done, Chris. We welcome Tracy Dixon-Salazar, who is the Director of Research and Strategy at the Lennox-Gastow Syndrome Foundation based in the US. And we're going to talk today about what LGS is and um, a bit about Tracy, her background and how LGS fits into other genetic disorders. So welcome, Tracy. Thank you. It's great to be here. So can you just tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be working in this space? Uh, 24 years ago now, um, my daughter had a seizure out of the blue. She's 26 years old now, and back then she was two. And I was a very young stay-at-home mom, and I had no idea what was about to happen to us and to our lives. She had a couple of seizures. You know, they were tonic-clonic seizures in the beginning, And then she went six months without having any seizures at all. And we thought we had dodged a bullet, really, and that, phew, we missed missed that. And then when she was three, the seizures came back full force with a vengeance. She started having seizures every day. She started having multiple types of seizures, ultimately ended up having six different types of seizures, probably more than that now. From the time she was three to the time she was 18 years old, she basically sees every day. A good day was five to 10 seizures. A bad day was hundreds, too many to count, and you really never knew what what day you were going to get, if it was going to be a hundreds of seizures day or a five seizure day. And so our lives were absolute hell across that whole time. She got the diagnosis of Lennox-Gastaut syndrome when she was five, um, and before that it was intractable epilepsy. And, you know, we now know years later that Lennox-Gastaut syndrome is not something that anyone is born with. It's something that develops over time in some children who have uncontrolled seizures. And it's a sign that the seizures are really taking over brain development and causing the brain to form in very unusual ways, but ways that are are very similar across LGS kids. So we were pretty devastated when she was five at that diagnosis. And I have been in the space ever since trying to leave it better than we found it. You're the director of research and strategy. How did you get into that role? Like, how did you progress from being a mum of a child who's had this devastating diagnosis into into that role? So I started volunteering immediately for our local epilepsy foundation. We live in California, and I didn't really find a lot of resources to help us because our daughter's epilepsy was just so severe. And and back then, the focus was really on you know how you can live a full life with epilepsy and we weren't living any sort of life whatsoever. We were just uh, at the mercy of the seizures whenever they struck. And so I actually um, started reading everything I could get my hands on. What caused it? No one could ever tell us why she started having seizures at two. She had been typical before that. So I um, I started reading as much as I could. I would check out internet time at the library <laughs> back then <laughs> and um, before the World Wide Web was in everyone's house. Stumbled across some scientific papers on what caused epilepsy. Actually, the first papers I read were by um, the Australian group in Melbourne, Ingrid Sheffer and Sam Berkovic. There was one of the first 
papers that I ever read, and I didn't understand uh, every fifth word of it. And so I enrolled in college as a 25-year-old mother, thinking that I needed to take some English classes so I could understand Dr. Sheffer and Dr. Berkovic, because clearly their paper was in English, and I didn't understand it. And so I took a few English classes. I did really well. And then I said, you know, I'm I, maybe I need to take some science classes. And it turns out that their papers are very much in science and medicine, which are not all that uh, much like English, or at least the English I spoke. And I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the subject. And after 12 very long years, I ultimately got, I stayed in school for a very long time. And school gave me an identity apart from being a mother of a sick kid, you know, it gave me something else to do. I couldn't stop my child's seizures, but I could study and I was very good at it. So after 12 years, I got a PhD in neuroscience. I just wanted to be a part of the group of people around the world that were looking for causes of epilepsy. You know, back 20 years ago, the dogma was, you know, thankfully, we don't need to know what causes epilepsy in order to treat it. And you can't die from seizures and seizures don't damage the brain. And this was not playing out at all in our lives. Of course, the seizures were damaging her brain. None of the drugs or therapies targeted against her seizures, the symptoms, worked. And she had multiple near-death experiences. And so I just thought, you know, at least I'll be a part of the group of people trying to make it better. So I spent 12 years. I studied basic neuroscience. And I did a postdoc in neurogenetics in California right about the time the genomic and genetic revolution happened, where we were finding genes left and right that caused early onset epilepsy. So it was a very exciting time. And I spent uh, multiple years doing my postdoc and then moved to nonprofit work because, you know, the scientists had really moved on. The scientists had found all these genes and they were going to keep finding genes and, you know, they were going to study them, but no patients we're getting genetic testing. You know, I'm in the lab and I'm screaming, this is going to change the way we practice medicine. And the scientists were like, yeah, that's great, but that's not what we do. So I, I left the lab and I worked for Cure Epilepsy for about four years as a funder. And now I work at the LDS Foundation as their research director, really trying to encourage physicians. Um, and it's been a long haul trying to get them to understand the science and move faster, but really to get them to order the tests and to understand how knowing the gene that causes your seizures really can lead to a change in management and a change to prognosis, movement into clinical trials and things that are happening now around personalized genomic medicine. So a long answer to how I ended up here, but it's where I am now and I love it. And I suppose next I have to go work for an insurance company because they're certainly not covering the tests the way they should be. So as I follow this problem through my life. So I can certainly relate to that experience. You know, our son is 18 and, you know, we certainly can recall being told, you know, we'll just manage the seizures and that strategy wasn't working too well. And it wasn't until many years later, it was then, well, why is he having seizures and is there an explanation for it? So Lennox-Gastau syndromes had a sort of definition. I remember when I was in medical school 30 years ago, it had a particular definition. How do you find it in 2020? The last 10 years in Lennox-Gastau syndrome research have been probably the most exciting. You know, when I first came into the space, um, it really is a collection of symptoms. So if you have more than one seizure type, if you have intractable seizures, if you have age of onset of your seizures under the age of about eight years old, um, and you have a very specific EEG pattern called slow spike in wave, then you have LGS. 
Um, and that was the definition. And, and, you know, 20 years ago and actually 50 years ago, we, LGS has been around since the 60s. That's how we did practice medicine. We described it. You know, we didn't have all these fancy technological tools to dive deep into the genetics and the genomics and into the EEG. And we know a lot more of it now. And I think that because it's been around for so long, people just thought that it was this thing that sprung up, you know, usually you see the slow spike in wave on EEG between the age of two and five years old. And so they thought it was for a long time, this own distinct clinical entity. But in the last five to 10 years, we know that it evolved. About 30% of infantile, infantile spasms kids will develop LGS, tuberous sclerosis. About 40% of those patients you know, they're born with a gene defect, they'll, 80% will develop infantile spasms. And from those that have infantile spasms due to the TS gene will evolve into LGS. And what LGS means, and again, out of some amazing work coming out of John Archer's lab in Melbourne, that we know is that it's, it's a sign that the wiring, you know, the brain during development in a child is putting itself together. It's connecting the wires and the neurons are talking to each other. And LGS and slow spike and wave are a sign that the brain is putting itself together in a very abnormal way, but that abnormal way is, is consistent across patients with LGS. So compared to normal people, this brain wiring is very abnormal, but compared to other LGS people, it's pretty similar. And so you get this slow spike in wave and you can now see on with advanced neuroimaging that it's a wiring defect. And so our whole premise has really been over the last three years that I've been at the LGS Foundation is to talk about this evolution. We have six drugs in the United States that are FDA approved for the treatment of Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, but all of them are toward the symptoms, the seizures. And by the time you have the slow spike in wave, the chances of you reversing that slow spike in wave, the chances of you stopping the seizures are very low. Um, more than 85% of LDS kids continue to have seizures into adulthood. More than 95% are moderate to severe intellectual disabled. And so we have been huge proponents at the LGS Foundation of intervening earlier. If there's a gene like in tuberous sclerosis, like I just described, that can be targeted, please, for the love of God, target it before the devastation. You can target the evolution somehow. If you know that the infantile spasms are a trigger or likely to evolve, how can you target that evolution? So we spend a lot of time trying to, to really drive research around the evolution. And we're here to support anyone that does have LDS, and we are there for them. But you'll be hard-pressed to meet an LDS parent that doesn't wish that it could have been stopped early. Yeah, that's a really helpful explanation of LGS and how it interdigitates with the specific genetic diagnoses. So someone might have a specific genetic diagnosis and left untreated, evolves into an LGS, which is then a common manifestation across different genes of how the brain responds to that insult or the metabolic effects of the defect from their gene. Absolutely. And we know that about 50% of all LGS cases are genetic. There's no one gene that says you will develop LGS. It's a predisposition gene. But there are uh, many genes, actually over 100. <laughs> I'm tracking to about 130 now where there have been cases where the person, you know, the child has a gene defect in one of these genes and they also developed LGS. We spend a lot of time thinking about genes like SCN2A, um, which you guys are very interested in, thinking about how that can be targeted early to prevent the evolution of LGS and how we can support your foundation to make that happen. Um, I personally can't give devoted attention to 150 genes. <laughs> so anytime a new gene organization pops up, I'm so, so thrilled. But we also need to work together and collaborate whenever we can. 
And honestly, my money's on the SCN2A families to really drive a cure home faster than treating the symptoms as we, as we have been. In the SCN2A space, we've got some exciting research happening and hopefully, as you say, treating, treating the cause rather than the symptoms. So um, hopefully as that evolves, it'll have impact on those families that progress to the Lennox Gastro Syndrome. And we're going to move on. You talked a little bit about collaborating and, uh, you know, working with all the different gene groups, but I guess across epilepsy as a whole. And I just want to touch on last year in November, you organised or convened a patient-focused drug development meeting um, for DEEs with the FDA. Is that correct? Yes, that's great. It was a great opportunity for us to go and speak to them. So what was the focus of that meeting? Purpose of the patient-focused drug development meetings are really for patients get a, to get a chance to speak to the FDA. The FDA um, and all other regulatory agencies outside the U.S. by and large have been approving drugs, especially the FDA, based on um, the burden of the disease, the currently available treatment, and also the safety and tolerability. But they've done this really without having heard directly from us as patients. We have six FDA-approved drugs for LGS. And they've largely been listening to, they've been reading the literature, they've been listening to themselves, they've been listening to physicians. And so this is a chance for patients to tell the FDA what it's like to live with this disease. And um, it's online. You can actually go watch it. It's a three and a half hour meeting. It is utterly heartbreaking. We applied to host this meeting. The FDA will host a number of them each year. And we applied and were told that we were granted it. And, and it was the LGS Foundation that hosted it. But we, for all the reasons I've already explained, we didn't really feel like we could do it on only LGS. We wanted to do it on the DEEs as a whole. And I know that we had representatives there from SCN2A as well. And it was really to talk about this evolution of LGS from the genes, from um, the other things that cause it, and targeting along the way. I know that right now there are many drug companies that are making drugs against the symptoms of LGS. And I really hope that they don't stop because then that would be saying to families that live with LGS today that don't know the cause, right, Um, or their cause isn't genetic, it would be saying, well, we're really sorry, we can't help you. But I also hope five to 10 years from now that we're, we're doing a better job at targeting the evolution and not doing it the exact same way that we've been doing drug development for the last 50 years in epilepsy. And so it was our chance. We had patients there who had genetic epilepsies. We had patients there who had injuries. And that's, that's how their child started developing epilepsy. Infantile spasms um, was represented there a little bit. And they all talked about this evolution. You know, once, once these families, you know, and mine too, um, develop LGS, it, it's awful. It's, you know, it's daily seizures, thousands and thousands of seizures every couple of months. You know, and they're seizing every day injuries, um, aspiration, pneumonia, near-death experiences. They're on anywhere between seven and 10 meds on average. They've tried twice that many. They all get the corpus callosotomy, the VNS, the diet they've all tried. You know, we, it, you know, in some ways, designing a drug for LGS is, is very profitable because we are desperate. We will try anything. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean it worked. And so it was our chance to tell the FDA, you know, the, the stories. Eight families, eight parents testified, and including myself. And seven of the stories were very sad. And the children were irreparably harmed, including one mom who testified about how her uh, her son had died of two deaths. And then, um, you know, it was just, it was heartbreaking. And then um, our testimony was one that was, a positive story. You know, we we found the genetic cause of my daughter's epilepsy when she was 18, and 
something we found when I was in the lab doing sequencing on everybody and found a medicine that actually miraculously really helped her. So she's 26 now. She's developing again. Um, she will never catch up to her typical peers, but we found something after you know all those decades of horrible seizures that really made a difference. And I think it spoke to not giving up, um, that targeting you know uh, the gene in patients, um, even if they're older, can make a huge impact. Um, that there is data now that you know we can target genes early, and we should be, and we should be exploring that for research. And you know, I think we made a few FDA members cry, which is always heartbreaking, but I do think they want to help and they did hear us. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's really important that the people doing doing the work in the space, whether it's the, the lab scientists, the people making decisions about what drugs, you know, that they're all aware of the impact on families. And this has evolved, I think probably you would have seen it more so than us, where the patient voice is getting louder and you know, include us in the conversation, listen to us, hear what we have to say. So that's a fantastic impetus for that meeting. What, did you actually get any outcomes from the meeting? Well, we got some really great feedback. Um, you know, there were some very high head of neurology products there that, that commented that the meeting was very helpful. It was very informative. Um, they learned things. What will happen now is that we're working on a voice of the patient report, which is usually what comes out of these meetings. Mm -hmm. And it will, you know, it will organize everything that was said in the meeting and also link to the transcript. Um, but then this will go to the FDA where we as a patient group can actually request another meeting where we ask them, okay, you've heard, you've listened. Now, how is this going to change research and development within the FDA? So it's called the Critical Path Institute meeting. So we're looking at doing that. And there have been some groups that, is, that have hosted these meetings who have used their voice of the patient report to begin to talk to payers, P, uh, insurance providers, about what is a meaningful treatment, right? So in LGS, you know, the biggest issues we're dealing with are, are obviously seizures, but it's, it's injuries, it's hospitalizations, it's frequent rescue medicine use, going to the ER. And if there was a medicine that maybe, maybe it didn't drop seizures by 50%, but it kept families out of the hospital or kept kids from, you know, busting their faces open, our families would see that as value added because who wants to go to the hospital? You Nobody, <laughs> nobody, um, you know, and, and same thing with rescue meds. If we could reduce, you know, our families are using rescue meds, you know, uh, weekly and monthly. And my daughter was getting it two to three times a week at her worst point, And that had gone on for years. They, they work acutely, but not in the long term. So if we can reduce rescue med use, you know, because she would be out for hours after that. That's value added, but maybe it didn't decrease seizures by 50%, which seems to be the standard that everybody's, you know, running around with. You know, I, for us in LGS, if your child's having 300 seizures a day and you drop those down to 150, I, I, it's great, but I'm not really sure that quality of life changed. And so yeah. how can we have conversations with payers about what really does change quality of life? Yes. And also working, you know, as we're moving into clinical trials in SCN2A, it's having that voice within industry and the biotech companies that are developing these treatments. Like what are the, the, the endpoints that families and people affected by these genetic conditions or um, syndromes, like what are the endpoints that they want? Sure, we want a cause, but what are the steps in between that would make a difference to families? It's right. really important to have that, that voice and we continue to press on to make sure that that's heard. Um, is there anything else that you want to share with the community about LGS, where you're heading, the next steps um, in terms of what you're doing? So, you know, LGS 
foundation is going to just keep pressing on, really trying to um, unite the community where we can work together and and then, you know, fiercely dividing where we need to. The science of sDNA is very different than the science of, you know, in the other genes and the science even of slow spike and wave in, you know, two to five-year-olds. And so I think we still need to be pursuing those fronts individually, but we can collaborate. Uh, you know, I just would say to families that are out there that I didn't have a lot of hope as a young mom, um, you know, about the future. Really, for my first about 12 or 13 years in the epilepsy space, we did the same thing the same way uh, and expected different results, and I didn't understand it. And and slowly, things started to change. The genomic revolution, obviously, um, has brought a lot of hope. The interest of, of companies coming in and creating specific therapies, you know, I think is really, really helpful. I mean, Batten's disease now has a treatment that you that can really help these kids to live longer. Batten's disease for CLN2 used to be a death sentence. And now these kids, you know, especially if you intervene early, you can make a huge difference. So it's a time of hope. And I don't think we have that. Uh, it's also a time where there's a lot of work to be done still. So anything you can do to spread the word, uh, it's going to take all of us pushing, talking about the severe epilepsies, talking about, you know, gene-specific therapies, talking about the help that we need. And so everyone who has a story, if you're comfortable talking about it, I tell everyone that will listen to me, poor, poor people that sit next to me on airplanes have to hear the whole story, but <laughs> we just need to educate. So, so that's it. I would just say, keep fighting. Don't give up. So Dave, what were your take-homes from the interview with Tracy? I think one of the key things for me was really understanding that Lennox-Gastel syndrome is a clinical syndrome where you can get these disastrous things happen as a consequence of having severe epilepsy, but it's not actually a genetic diagnosis. And those two things can occur in parallel, which has been a thing of confusion within the community where someone might say, for example, my child has SCN2A as a genetic disorder, but also previously had a diagnosis before their gene diagnosis of Lennox-Gastel syndrome. You know, is one wrong or is the other wrong? No, in actual fact, you can have both. You have SCN2A as the abnormal gene that makes you prone to getting epilepsy. And that epilepsy over time causes Lennox-Gastel or results in Lennox-Gastel syndrome, which then becomes a problem in its own right. So I thought that was really well explained by Tracy and helped me really understand that. Keep up with the latest updates by subscribing to this podcast. You can also get regular updates on SCN2A through SCN2A Australia's Facebook or Twitter at SCN2A Australia. Thanks a lot. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.